Ephesians chapter 4 from verse 25. And we read, Therefore each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbour, for we are all members of one body. In your anger do not sin, do not let the sun go down while you are angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Let's just pray. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for the instruction that you give us in your word. Lord, you call us to Jesus, but then you empower us and you lead us and guide us. You show us how we can live lives to bring glory to you. Lord, we pray that you'll help us to take your word into our hearts and our minds and then live it out day by day in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to begin tonight with a, a story. You've almost certainly, many of you have it before, but it fits with what we're going to look at tonight, and it's good, and I like it, so we're going to hear it again. And it's the story of two brothers who were both very well known in the town where they lived. They were both extremely rich, but they were both also very wicked. However, to the best of their ability, they tried to use their wealth to cover up their wickedness. As part of this, they were both regular attenders at their local church every Sunday, and they both contributed large sums to a whole variety of different church-related programs. Then the church called a new pastor, a man who preached the truth and a man who had the kind of insight and integrity that saw straight through these brothers. During his ministry, the church grew and before long, they needed a new building. Unexpectedly, one of the two brothers died, and this pastor was called upon to take the funeral. The day before the funeral, though, the other brother arranged to meet the pastor, and he handed him an envelope. In this, he said, is a banker's draft, large enough to pay the entire bill for the new church building. All I ask before I give you this is that at my brother's funeral, you tell the congregation that he was a saint. The pastor agreed and that afternoon deposited the banker's draft into the church's bank account. The next day, the pastor gave the address at the funeral. As part of it, he said with a firm conviction, this man was an ungodly sinner, wicked, to the core. He was unfaithful to his wife, hot-tempered with his children, and dishonest in his business dealings, and he was a hypocrite at church. But compared to his brother, 
He was a saint. <laughs> now, that is a story with its themes of hypocrisy, dishonesty, outright wickedness that, that fits in perfectly with what we're actually going to look at tonight in Ephesians 4 from verse 25. You see, in this, this chapter so far, we've been looking at together based on the foundation of Christian truth, the truth basis of the Christian faith that, that we found in Ephesians 1 to 3, what we've been looking at in these last weeks is what the fact that we are then now new creations in Christ, is what this then should lead to in our lives, and what we should therefore be aiming for and expect to see in our lives, both individually and as a church. So then over the last few weeks, we've looked at things like unity, maturity, and then last week we looked at purity, at holiness, at the fact that because we are new creations in Christ, born again by the Spirit of God, so then we are empowered and enabled by the Spirit to live a new, holy, transformed life. All the resources that we need in order to live like this are available to us in Christ. If only we realize this, if only we remember this and then choose by faith to take hold of these resources, choose to live this life that is God's will for his people. Now what Paul moves on to now in the verses we're looking at tonight is, is really practical examples of how this should work itself out, what this should look like in the life of a Christian. And the structure regarding how he goes about this is, is described, laid out by, by Harold Hohner. I've mentioned him a few times, but mentioned it's laid out for him in these terms. He says, this new section has five exhortations with regard to the believer's conduct. Each of these exhortations has three parts. A negative command, a positive command, and the reason for the positive command. All the exhortations have the three parts in the same order except the second one, which reverses the first two parts. Now, I was intending to look at all the five of these tonight, but when it, I thought it was going to be a two-hour sermon, I thought, I'll cut this back a wee bit. So, but anyway, let's look at Paul's exhortation here then to the church, to Christians, beginning with, first of all, Christians shouldn't tell lies, but rather should be truthful. And it's interesting that Paul starts here with speech as he unpacks how the fact that we are new creations in Christ, how he, as he unpacks how this transformation then should work its way out, should be seen in our lives. And in particular, it's interesting that he starts off with speech in relation to falsehood and truth. For of course, ultimately, falsehood is rooted in the devil. And is his main tactic and characteristic of the way that the forces of evil operate. As Jesus makes so forcefully clear in, in John 8, 44, when speaking there to his opponents, he says to them, he says, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks in his native language, 
for he is a liar and the father of lies. So then, falsehood, telling lies, being deceptive, deceptive, should have no part in the life of anyone who is a new creation in Christ. And when someone claims the name of Christians but does tell lies, when someone who claims the name of a Christian is known to be characteristically deceptive and dishonest, well then that shows that there is something seriously wrong at the heart, at the core of who we are. John Lilly, an English writer and poet whose works actually said to have influenced Shakespeare, he once said that the tongue is the ambassador of the heart. And Thomas Watson, the Puritan, he communicated something very, very similar, but this time in the form of a question. And this was his question. How can Christ be in the heart when the devil has taken possession of the tongue? Now what both these men in different ways are saying is in my view totally biblical. That when someone claims to be a Christian but is characteristically dishonest and deceptive, when this is in a sense a trademark of the way they live their life, then that shows that there is something seriously wrong in the heart, at the core of who they are. Either that we're not Christians, that we might know some, some facts about Jesus, we might even have had some kind of emotional experience that in some way involved Jesus, but if we're living like this, we have not yet recognised Jesus Christ as Lord. We have not bowed down to him. We've not submitted our lives to him. We have not yet committed ourselves to living our lives in obedience to him. Or, if we are Christians, if we did at some point make a commitment to him as Saviour and Lord, yet now, right now, there is something wrong at the heart, at the core of our relationship with him. For if we are living with dishonesty, deception, hypocrisy, add all the different words as a defining characteristic of our life, then that shows, that demonstrates that Jesus Christ is not now actively Lord of our lives. That we've fallen away, perhaps slowly slipped away from the commitment we once made to him. That's the negative command here. That a Christian should not tell lies. That a Christian should not be known for dishonesty and hypocrisy. The positive is that instead, a Christian should be known for being truthful, for being a truth teller. And again, as lies are rooted in the character of the devil, so truth is seen as being rooted in the character of God. And therefore should be a characteristic then of the people of God who are born again by the Spirit of God. So for example, we read in Psalm 31 verse 5, Redeem me, O Lord. And then it goes on, the God of truth. And then in John 14, 6, we have that famous statement of Jesus where he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, the main thrust of this, of course, is that Christians should be known for, for being truthful 
in their day-to-day life, that the things that we say, the way that we conduct ourselves, that every part of our lives should really just shout out truth. For we are a people locked in a relationship with a God of truth. But there's perhaps maybe just something a little bit more to this here. That is, that we will be a people, that, that we should be a people who will speak the truth. That is the truth of Jesus, that we will be ready to speak the truth of Christian faith into the life of the church, into the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ, into life in general. We will bring that Jesus perspective into all these areas of life. But notice that the Paul specifies here who we have to speak truth to, to live life out with, to live truth out with. He specifies them here as our neighbor. Now, the basic meaning of neighbor in the Bible is actually someone in need. And Jesus, he makes it clear in the, the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10 that for the Christian, actually the real issue lies not in defining who is or isn't our neighbor, but rather it's in us being a neighbor to all who come our way. But the context here, though, dictates that, that what's primarily in Paul's mind at this point is our relationships within the church. The honesty, telling the truth, living out the truth, are absolute non-negotiables for the church and for the Christian in our interaction with the church and with our fellow Christians. But although that is Paul's primary focus here, because he's writing to the church about the life of the church, yet, again I want to say, this isn't, it cannot exclusively be about Christians' relationships with one another. It can't be that, and I'll tell you why. It can be that because our truthfulness doesn't depend on who we're speaking to. No, our truthfulness is rooted in who we are. Is rooted in the fact that in Jesus Christ we are new creations called to reflect in our lives the life of Christ. The one who by his spirit in us enables and empowers us to live for him. But the fact that this is here primarily about, about Christian relationships is emphasised by the reason Paul gives at this point for this positive command. For we are all members, he says, of one body. Now this we know is about the church. Because this is the picture that, that Paul frequently uses to describe the nature of the church. And I think it's significant that the word that he uses here that we translate into English, members, that we're all members of one body, this is never used anywhere in any kind of literature in terms of membership of an organisation or of a club. Now, this word is always used in relation to an organism. That is, it's always used in relationship to a, a living being with each part of that being interconnected, interrelated with one another. Because, you see, members of an organisation or a club, they don't need to have close relationships with one another. People who just come into buildings, we maybe occasionally sit together, occasionally meet, but that's as far as it goes. If that's the level that we're at, 
then that's not what Paul's talking about. And if we're living like that, then the way that other members of the organisation behave, they, they don't usually affect us too much. We don't feel too linked in with them, so it doesn't hurt us so much. And if it does, then well, we leave and we join another club. But you see, when we're members of an organism, when we're part of a living body, then we are one with one another and nothing can separate us. And when that then is the case, so then when we live in truth, when our relationships with one another are all about truth, then as Christians and as a church, we will be spiritually healthy and effective. But the other side is when falsehood, when hypocrisy begins to be a prominent part in our lives then that doesn't only impact on the individual and their relationships. No, that impacts on the whole church because we're connected to one another. It affects the fellowship, it affects the witness, it affects the effectiveness of every single area of church life. So you see, when someone claims to be a Christian but then lives a life that's a denial of that, then that's not just about them. It's not just their sin. It affects and impacts on the whole church. And ultimately, this is a sin against God that breaks God's heart. As his people live in a way that is a denial of him and of the life that he's given them, that breaks God's heart. Paul's second exhortations, exhortation sorry, is that Christians can get angry, but they should not let this lead them into sin. Verse 26 and 27. He says, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. So Paul begins then by telling us we can be angry. Surprising perhaps. Certainly in view of the fact that the Bible has got so much to say about man's anger and that nearly all of it is negative. For example, Proverbs 27 verse 4, it says, Anger is cruel and fury overwhelming. And even just a few verses further on in this very chapter in Ephesians, we're told as anger is sinful and it's something that we should seek to be, to be rid of. So how do we reconcile this then? Well, I believe by recognising that in the Bible there are two different types of anger. There is unrighteous and righteous anger. Man's anger generally is unrighteous. But God's anger is always righteous. Man's anger is unrighteous because almost invariably that anger is about self. You see, we get angry because of things that are said and done that impact on us. Things that hurt our pride, that cause damage to our sense of self-worth. When we feel people are trying to make a fool of us. When we feel maybe that they're not taking us seriously. These are the kind of things that make us angry. But you see, God's righteous anger is very different. Because his anger is aroused by sin. 
And his anger is aroused by the damage that he sees sin doing, doing to his perfect creation and doing to mankind the pinnacle of that creation. You see, God gets angry when he sees sin and evil devastating this world and devastating the lives of men and women. God gets angry when he sees the poor being oppressed and exploited. God gets angry when he sees addiction ravage people's lives. God gets angry when he sees the weak unjustly suffering at the hands of the strong. Then God gets angry. Romans 1.18 talks of the, the wrath of God against sin. And we as God's people, we should get angry at these kind of things. And you know, that I believe is one of the, the great faults of the church in our day. We are not angry enough at sin. For we live today in a society where injustice is all around us. We're increasingly state-ordained morality is tearing our society apart. Where individuals and families are day by day, every day, being destroyed by addictions of various kinds. Are we, though, saying enough? And more importantly, are we doing enough about this? Are we angry enough? I don't think so. I don't think there is enough righteous anger in my heart. Or in the church. But then Paul, Paul adds a much needed restriction. This time as a negative command. He says be angry but do not sin. That is beware that even in your righteous anger. That you are not led and drawn into sin. Led maybe to express that anger in sinful ways. For example by retaliating and hitting out in anger rather than working for justice and seeking to do good. Or being led into sin by allowing even our righteous anger to become contaminated by sin and by self. As we allow injured pride and spite and malice and personal animosity to move what maybe began as our righteous anger over the line into unrighteousness. For though you see God does get angry, yet he's always in control of his anger. And he never ever expresses his anger in ways that are unjust or that are disproportionate. And such is the, is the danger of anger here that the Paul adds another restriction to this. He says, verse 26, do not let the sun go down while you are angry. Now this isn't in any way, let me make it clear, a signal that it's okay to be angry all day long and that's fine as long as you put things right at night. So just make sure you get all the rage out before it gets dark. It's not that. Now what this is about, this is a warning about the dangers of nursing anger. About the dangers of holding anger close and allowing it to fester and eat away at us. And in addition, also, the importance of reviewing regularly, daily, if not much more often even than that, reviewing, looking at the things that are angering us and at the way that we're expressing that anger. You know, is our anger genuine anger at sin? Or is it motivated and distorted by our self-interest? 
And are we going on? Are we expressing our anger appropriately? Are we speaking up for the poor and oppressed? Are we speaking out against immoral policies that are destroying our society? And are we seeking to do whatever is in our power for sin's victims and doing it all for them? And then Paul, at this point, adds the reason why he adds this particular exhortation in his call here for Christians to live out their new life in Christ. Then in verse 27, he says, Do not give the devil a foothold. Now you see, the word that Paul uses here for the devil, diabolos, literally means slander. And what again this is emphasizing is that the devil is by nature a liar and that what he loves to do, his main tactic, is to twist and distort the truth. You can see that in his tactics in the broadest sense. And that the devil, what he loves to do is he, he loves to take things that are good and then he twists them to use them against God and against man, the creation of God. Just one example. One of the key concepts in our society that everybody's always going on about today is, is freedom. Freedom. And it's a wonderful world. It's a wonderful God-given concept. But it has been twisted. In the Today, when people generally think about freedom, they focus on their personal freedom. That they should be free to do what they want, that they should be free to be whatever they want without any restrictions. But what about when our freedom devastates the life of those around us? What about when the things that that we initially believe we choose freely to do, what about when they begin to dominate us and exercise tyranny over our lives? You see, true freedom is actually the freedom to be what we were made to be. And that is responsible men and women in relationship with God and so concerned about the needs of others and the needs of our world. But a particular area, in which the devil loves to twist and distort the truth, is in regard to what we're looking at here, in regard to anger. Anger at those things, anger at those people that anger us. You see, the devil, he loves to get us angry at people in the church. He loves to stir up dissension and division in the church. He loves to get us nursing our grievances. He loves to get them into our heart and then to twist them and distort them and to build them up and build them up and keep them alive, burning in our hearts, making things far bigger and far more serious than they actually are. The devil loves to do that because an angry church, a church where people are holding grudges against one another, is a spiritually weak church but cannot do the work that God has for them. But you see, if we follow the path that Paul set out for us here, then we will never be that church. We will never be that kind of Christian. If we check whether our anger is righteous anger, motivated by seeing sin, or unrighteous anger, motivated by self-interest. If we check whether our anger is being expressed in righteous ways, or if the devil is distorting perhaps even our righteous anger and leading us to express it in a sinful way. 
And if we refuse to let the sun go down on our anger, that is, if we refuse to nurse our anger and instead regularly take time to review the things we are angry at, why we are angry, and how we're expressing that anger, then the devil will not get his way, either in our lives or in our church. I'm going to draw things to a close at this point. There is more to be said, but I'll save that for another time because I don't want to indulge myself in a, a long sermon and rouse any of you to anger, which you'd have to decide whether it was righteous or unrighteous. But I've said enough tonight, I hope, to convince you that Paul expects our new life in Christ to express itself practically in our lives. And that as we seek to live this life, then God will enable us, by the power of his Spirit, he will enable us to live this life. We might at times fall short. We might at times, different points, wander away from living the Christian life as we should. But if we turn to God, if we seek him, then he will restore us and get us right back on track again. And you know, it is so important that we live our Christian life in a God-honoring way. It's so important. And how that was brought home to me is I, I found something this week that was written by W.A. Criswell, one of the most influential Baptist pastors in the United States in the 20th century. And here's what he shared. In my dream, I saw the Saviour. His back was bare, and there was a soldier lifting up his hands and bringing down that awful cat of nine tails. In my dream, I rose and grasped his hand to hold it back. When I did, the soldier turned in astonishment and looked at me. And when I looked at him, I recognised myself. You see, if as Christians, we live our lives carelessly, if we don't seek God and give ourselves to live that life that honours him, if we don't lay hold of that life-transforming power of the Spirit that is available to us in Christ, then in a sense, we shame and dishonour Christ, just as he was shamed and dishonoured at the cross. We cause him pain, just as that whip caused him pain. I know that no one here who loves Jesus Christ wants to do that. So let's remember again who we are in Jesus Christ. And let's seek him. Let's choose him. That as Christians and as a church, we might live that life together that honours him and brings him joy. Let's pray. Father, we just want to acknowledge again how important it is that we live our Christian lives in a way that glorifies you. Lord, we pray, take any desire or any habit of living our lives carelessly, take that from us and help us again to be committed to living in a way that brings you glory in every part of our lives. And we pray this now in Jesus' name.